when we look around us and we say, oh gosh, there's so much energy trapped in stuff that we see as waste. If there's ways for the microbes to help us convert something from unusable waste to usable waste, I think that's really exciting. Welcome to Bubbles, a podcast for curiosity. The goal for this podcast is to talk to people every week who are outside my own bubble. People are doing something completely different than me and who could spark curiosity in these fields. Professor Kern is currently teaching at Minerva Schools in the Natural Sciences Department. Prior to this, she taught biology at Claremont Colleges and earned her PhD from MIT on the topic of bacterial metabolism. She has had both teaching and mentoring roles at Caltech, MIT, and Colorado Colleges. I got to know you through the capstone classes, and I was really impressed by the way you're able to explain complicated thoughts into really actionable feedback. And briefly looking through your PhD thesis, I was quite intrigued, as I couldn't even pronounce, let alone understand the title of your thesis. And so that is kind of the background for this episode. I'm really curious to hear more about your research. How did you get into it, and what motivated it, uh, and what the implications are? Um, so thanks a lot for taking the time. Sure. Yeah, to go to that first question of how did I get into it, it it comes back to starting as a biochemistry major at Colorado College. So this was a liberal arts school. Um, my my focus there was sort of on environmental interactions with biochemistry in the research projects that I did. And at the end of my time at Colorado College, I realized that I was very interested in teaching at the undergraduate level. And I, I took three years before I started my PhD. And in that time, I was trying to figure out what would be my focus. What did I want to contribute new knowledge to the world about? And biochemistry and chemistry, where I had done all of my undergraduate work, um, just didn't quite speak to me. I didn't understand what it would look like to create new knowledge in those fields. And instead I started looking for other ways to go and explore further. And I, I learned about bacterial metabolism and, and microbial metabolism in general as being just these incredible examples of chemistry that happen out in the natural world. And that got me hooked. So then I thought, okay, uh, what is this microbiology thing? which is basically anything that is uh, microscopic and can live on its own and is a microscopic organism. Um, and so I ended up doing some research with a group that studied bacteria in the ocean, so photosynthetic bacteria that live in the ocean, and the ecological dynamics between those photosynthetic bacteria and the viruses that infect them and, and transfer genes one to another. And during that time, I applied to research programs. And the ones that I was most excited about looked at the chemistry, the metabolism of bacteria. And so that's that's into it. And what I thought was so cool along the way of doing research was the, the opportunity to look at what's even possible. So when we go through high school biology, it's really common to spend most of our time thinking about metabolism that is common to us and many other animals and plants and things that we can see. But when you open up the possibilities of metabolism and you say, 
anything that's out there. I want to know what's eking out an existence in any given weird environment. You just find all sorts of new metabolisms. And so I think we are still discovering really interesting and impressive ones. And then there's also themes that are recurring where we can see different types of organisms. They are utilizing similar sets of metabolism, similar networks to achieve similar outcomes, even though they're very distantly related. And so all of that I think is just so cool because bacteria, a focus of microbiology, um, let you study everything from the genetics and the metabolism and the population dynamics and the ecosystem that they're a part of, all from a singular cell's perspective. And that would be a weird thing to do in the human body, for example. So I love that part of it. Interesting. So, um, so what is uh, if you were to explain what metabolism is in, in like in oh. its most basic form, what, what would that be? Sure. So, metabolism. I'll focus on um, energy harvesting metabolism. So there are different types. Energy harvesting would be you eat some food and you breathe air, and out of that you can sustain yourself. Um, you can. You can lift weights, you can go for a run, you can sit there and think thoughts. All of that has to be powered somehow. And so energy harvesting metabolism is taking, more or less, it's taking electrons that are available in food of some sort and combining those with something that wants to take electrons and basically building what looks like a battery if you zoom out far enough to power other processes in your cells, your body. So for bacteria, metabolism for harvesting energy can look like it does for us. Maybe they're eating sugar and they're breathing oxygen and through that they're powering their cells, but they can also do things like quote unquote breathe iron. So they can use iron to accept electrons from food that they've acquired in their environment. And they may not be restricted to sugars and fats and proteins in the ways that we are, they might be able to digest the really woody, uh, stiff parts of plants that we can't digest. And so there's all these different ways that they can combine basically one thing that holds energy with something that can take electrons and harvest uh, for their own purposes that energy that comes from coupling those two things. Gotcha. Okay. So if if you had like a if you had a bacteria like a, one specific type of bacteria and you put it in a kind of like a close system like in the human body for instance, how, how would that how would that process of um, so let's say I'm a small bacteria in in my own body how 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 do I go about finding like does it does it exist and then just kind of get all the nutrients it needs. Um, just purely from existing, or does it go out and look for, okay, this is what I need, this is what, I, like like a human would go out and look for food, essentially. Cool, so does it forage, or does it kind of sit there passively? There's a mix of approaches. It's pretty common that um, bacteria, at least, are more often stationary than they are moving around, so they might move around when they are in a low-nutrient environment. There, there can be regulatory networks that basically sense low nutrients and trigger movement so that the bacterium has a chance to get to a place with better nutrients. Um, and often when they get to that place, they uh, they stay put. So they might anchor themselves there or they might not, not continue moving in order to stay in a location that's got good nutrients. If they are fortunate and they are in a place with good, uh, good conditions, they can um, 
basically grow and divide. So one bacterium becomes two, two become four, four become eight. And so we see exponential growth to the carrying capacity of an environment uh, without them necessarily moving around. And it's when they get starved that they're more likely to move around and search for a, a habitat that's a little bit better. And that might just be a few inches away, right? When you're a bacterium and you're so tiny, um, what we might see as a pretty much homogenous mixture is really heterogeneous at the scale of bacteria. So they have a lot of different adaptation modes and from one type to the next, it's gonna look really different what they do and how they survive. Interesting. What is, yeah. uh, if you were to explain one type, just like pick a bacteria at, at random and explain like how that process works for it, how, how would you do that? Cool, well, I'll pick the one that I studied the most. It's called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. It exists in lots of places. It's a really versatile bacterium. So it exists out in the soil, on plants. It probably exists somewhere on your skin right now. Um, it can also cause infections. And that's why it gets studied a lot because it can form really hard to treat infections. That comes down to the fact that it can survive pretty well. It can resist antibiotic treatment pretty well. And so it can be hard to get rid of once it's kind of lodged itself in a particular uh, human environment, if you will. So examples include burn wounds. So if you get a very serious burn and you've got exposed skin, this is actually very adept at setting up shop there. Also in um, lung infections. So people who have lots and lots of mucus may at some point get a Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection and it can be very hard to get rid of that infection. You just try to kind of keep it under control. And so how it works is it's got a variety of metabolisms to choose from. Again, just focusing on energy harvesting, it can eat all sorts of sugars and amino acids and other things that would be familiar to us. But in terms of what it can connect the other end of the battery to, it's got oxygen, just like we do, and it can grow really quickly if it's got, say, sugar and oxygen. Um, but it can also do other things. It can, in the absence of oxygen, grow if there's arginine present. Arginine is one of the 20 main amino acids. It's a totally crazy thing that it can do this, but basically it takes up arginine, it spits out something else. And in the meantime, it gets a little unit of energy. So ATP is something that a lot of people may have seen in biology textbooks. It's called the energy currency of the cell. So just from eating multiple pieces of arginine, it can store multiple pieces of ATP to cash in later for something else. It can also survive anaerobically, so without oxygen, um, with a, a byproduct of metabolizing sugar. So one byproduct of metabolizing glucose is this small molecule called pyruvate. It doesn't really matter what its name is, but if there's enough of that around, the cell can stay alive. It may not grow and reproduce, but it can stay alive without oxygen. And then there's one more really cool thing that it does, um, which is what I studied, it can, again, with any given food source, it can take electrons and shuttle them to something outside of itself. So arginine might diffuse into the cell or might be taken up by a pump um, at the cell membrane and pyruvate might, be, have, might have been produced internal to the cell. These electron shuttles can basically take a buildup of electrons from that food source and diffuse out of the cell 
and go dump it to maybe oxygen that's at a distance or maybe iron that's at a distance. And then it can kind of diffuse its way back to the cell and slowly but surely keep the cell alive by making sure there isn't a buildup of electrons that it's actually able to harvest that energy. So it's got a whole bunch of options. Oh, there's even another one that I forgot to mention, nitrate, which is something else that might be in the environment um, and that can diffuse to the cell. And if that's present, it's yet one more place to put electrons. So just depending on the environmental conditions, it can ramp up or down these different metabolic options from its set of, uh, what would I say? From its set of genes in its genome. Okay, got it, kind of got it. Is, so is, is it, um, if, if, um, if this uh, bacteria, it takes the it does it takes all of these functions and what is the kind of like what is the output of it like what kind of things you mentioned it can it can lead to infections and uh, what kind of other things could happen as a result of these metabolisms? Sure. So if you've got cells that are living, they might be growing and dividing. They might be surviving. Um, they might be on their way to dying. And you can imagine that any of these things could be happening in any given population of cells at any given point. So when we talk about an infection getting set up in our bodies, for example, it's that there's way too much bacterial growth happening compared to what is normal for that part of the body, let's say. So you've probably heard that we have beneficial bacteria in and on us, and it's when that gets kicked out of kind of a stable equilibrium that you can end up with some disease states. One thing that these, these bacteria can do is they can start making um, making molecules that are actually a little bit toxic to us. And so they can cause inflammatory responses. Um, they can cause broader tissue damage. And so it's those infections that we tend to care about and want to treat because they cause either short-term or long-term damage that we would want to avoid. So other things that they can do include setting up what's called a biofilm. And so I've currently, I've so far been talking about one cell turns into two cells, two turn into four, four turn into eight, et cetera. Um, and you might be thinking of them as like individual things in space, but they're probably going to form what's called a biofilm, which is like a little mat of these cells growing together. And they oftentimes will put out extra material from, from inside to the outside of the cell that helps them to stick to each other. And when they've created this mat, this biofilm, it can provide protection to those cells that are deepest in the biofilm, in the mat, uh, because let's imagine you're trying to treat this with some pharmaceuticals. You've got some sort of medication, an antibiotic, and it can reach, let's say, the first 20% of the thickness of that mat, but it can't reach deeper by diffusion. Well, then those interior ones might be protected. So there are these behavior is too strong a word, but there are these responses that are sort of collective activity on the part of the bacteria that can make them harder to treat if they're causing an infection um, and can make them basically more robust to any number of challenges that might come their way. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So it, it, um, are there, what is kind of the reason why this bacteria exists? Is there, does, does it have some sort of biological function that it serves? Oh, why does anything exist? My <laughs> argument might simply be 
because it can. Um, so if we think about how anything exists, especially life forms, how any life forms exist in present day, they are equipped to deal with the, the opportunities and the hazards of a given environment. But if you put them in a different environment, they might not make it at all. So there are lots of bacteria that can survive in totally stressful environments, really hot, really cold, really salty, totally acidic. Um, and they actually wouldn't do so well if you don't have them in those really stressful looking environments. But that's from our lens, kind of imposing our view of, of what's easygoing and what's difficult living. This organism wouldn't make it everywhere, but it seems to have a lot of capacity to survive in lots of places and then potentially establish an infection um, when there's the opportunity to do so. And again, it's just, it's well equipped to live and divide in that environment. And so it does. Um, what service does it provide? Not necessarily anything, but I will add that you can imagine, and indeed there are examples of bacteria that do really interesting metabolisms that we might want to put to use. So for those bacteria or fungi that can digest lignin, um, that woody part of plants, you could potentially put those on a whole lot of debris, like plant debris, um, to digest that into other easier to use molecules like glucose. And then from there, uh, you could turn that towards a biofuel. And so that was where my initial interest uh, lay, was in this conversion through really cool metabolisms of one thing to another, potentially uh, for the benefit of biofuels. And so this idea of moving electrons from one molecule to another can be generalized. And there are people who are working on that same sort of principle and applying it to forming biofuels. That is crazy. Wait, can you explain on, uh, can you expand a little bit on the final thing you said about how you, how, how do you, if you were to like, like explain that process in, in very simple terms, how, how would that work from going from, so could you go from this bacteria to biofuels? So this bacteria could do a little bit of stuff that relates to biofuels. So specifically, you can use these little diffusible electron shuttles, um, and they're called phenazines. That's probably one of the words that was unpronounceable <laughs> in the title. Um, those phenazines can take electrons from the food source and put them onto an electrode instead of, say, oxygen. And so you're connecting the two parts of the battery from the food to an electrode. That electrode could be attached to a circuit, and therefore you're moving um, electricity through a circuit thanks to these organisms, huh. basically moving chemical energy from food into electrical energy in the form of electrons. That is crazy. Wait, so in, in, in theory, maybe maybe far far in the future could you could you for instance power a tesla using like this bacteria and some sort of some sort of food yeah the magnitude is not high enough so the principle is there you could have something that is moving electrons from one thing to another and powering something but we're talking on the scale of like a light bulb <laughs> not a tesla trying to accelerate to 60 miles an hour um on the other hand there's a different type of uh, biofuel, really the, the more accurate use of that term, is when, say, you have biodiesel. Um, and so that can be, you've 
you've used compounds in some fashion, you've got sort of a waste product, but it still has this energy in it, and you can build a combustion system for harvesting the energy. One thing you can do is if you have bacteria that are equipped to eat things that are normally not food, so you wouldn't necessarily want to do this for, say, corn, because corn can be fed to other things that can kind of sustain us in a pretty important way. So this is where we might want to look at corn husks and the stalks and other things that are very woody. And so then you've got organisms that can convert that into either sugar or maybe some lipids or something that is then more readily used as a fuel. And we would call that a biofuel. So they're kind of, they're sort of the, uh, the first pass at making something more usable than it currently is. And we know that wood contains energy, right? We would, uh, we can light a fire and burn that, but it creates lots of soot. You can't necessarily put wood into a car and burn it and have it do the things you want to do. And so this is a way to convert energy from one form into a more usable form. Got it. Okay. Is it then, it seems like a very interesting field to go into in terms of designing bacteria. Is that possible? Like the design, yes, absolutely. So the more we know about the genetics of different organisms, the more we can learn about what do particular genes end up doing if they're present in an organism. So this is coupling genetic information with biochemical information and um, broader metabolism and physiology information about a given organism. And when we know enough about which components are essential to work together to get to a certain outcome, we can potentially take those same pieces and put them in a different organism. And so that sometimes happens, say, in E. coli. We know E. coli really well because it's been studied a very long time. And so you can you can say, all right, I want something that grows as quickly as E. coli and uses the very easy food sources that we know to feed E. coli. To do this really interesting thing, you could then engineer by a molecular version of copying and pasting um, those genes into the E. coli cells and then seeing if they will do that same, um, that same action if you give them the same stimulus. Okay, cool. Just um, just a little bit of a basic question. What the the words um, cell, bacteria, and virus? How how do you and and I guess also uh, genetic coding? Do they all? How, how do you separate those different terms? Oh, such a good question. Okay, so a cell generally means any living thing that has a membrane, so like a an encasement that separates its inside from the external environment. So you and I are made up of cells. They're much bigger than microbial cells and our cells need one another in order to stay alive. So in a, in a multicellular organism, our smallest little functional units are considered to be cells, but then we also need organs and we need organ systems and things to kind of communicate and talk together. And so, to reduce us to cells is really a very reductionist approach that sometimes leads to challenges in interpretation of any results you might get from a single cell type because in our body they don't exist on their own. Bacterial cells are the same thing. There's some sort of membrane, a way of separating their insides from the external environment, but they can conceivably live on their own. So even if they are living in an association with other cells of the same type or even different types, 
technically they're still viable. They can still live their lives on their own, separated from that other set of, uh, of cells. So bacteria are a particular type of organism and they tend to be, like I said, independent. They're not reliant on being in a multicellular system, but we sometimes find them hanging out with other things. Um, and what else? They don't have a nuclear envelope. This is, this is one of the many uh, ways we've divided things is by looking at them. And so one of the things you see when you look at them compared to a human cell or even a plant cell or other things is the genetic material. The DNA is in a cluster, but it's not separated by another membrane from the rest of the interior of the cell. It's sort of an arbitrary cutoff. We call those prokaryotes. They don't have um, that nuclear envelope. But when you look at the genetic information of lots, not all, but lots of living things on the planet now, um, you can see an evolutionary relatedness between bacteria that is separate from the evolutionary relatedness of us and plants and insects. There's just different branches of the tree of life and bacteria are pretty far separate from us. And then what's another one? Viruses are sort of outside the bounds of this particular classification system. Viruses are more or less just genetic information, a few helper proteins and sort of an encasement that lets them survive in certain environments for long enough to find their next thing to infect. Um, and they, people will say they hijack the cell that they infect. So they use the existing um, proteins and other systems in a living cell to make copies of themselves. So they're as streamlined as you get, and they're not independently living, but their life cycle includes a phase that looks very much alive because in the cell that they've infected, that cell is making more of it. And so you have a reproduction possibility for viruses that in some ways looks pretty similar to bacteria, but a given virus itself is quite distinct from a bacterium because it's not strictly speaking alive in that moment. It's um, pretty exciting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, just, just final question on, on this exact topic. So uh, could you then, uh, going back to what we were talking about with designing bacteria, could you also then, could you apply like te technologies like CRISPR to both, to like cells, bacteria and viruses, like all, all types of, because um, presupposedly they, they do have genetic, all of them do have genetic data, right? Absolutely. Yep. And CRISPR is a thing that came from knowledge of bacteria interacting with viruses. Um, and so the, the immune system of some bacteria and some archaea, which is a third branch of life that we haven't mentioned before, um, they have these ways of recognizing invading genetic material. So if viruses replicate themselves by uh, inserting their genetic information into a bacterial cell or our cells for that matter. It's just, it's different from one virus to the next. Um, then it makes sense that over time, bacteria have evolved a way of recognizing that that is foreign information and should be chopped up and digested and removed from the system and that you shouldn't make copies of this thing that makes new viruses. And so CRISPR, um, 
is a discovery that is rooted in the way that bacteria and archaea recognize foreign DNA as something they've interacted with before, and they immediately recognize it as foreign and they chop it up. So it's an adaptive immune system of sorts. It's based fully on molecular recognition of specific sequences of DNA or RNA. And so we use that to make cuts and to insert new genetic information in any given organism. That is what's incredible about CRISPR is that it's really adaptable to many, many different genetic sequences and inserting them into many different organisms. So yes, you absolutely could genetically engineer uh, bacteria and viruses using it. Okay, now I have two more follow-ups on this and then, and then I can move on to the next topic. But you mentioned archaea, what is that? Oh yes, so archaea, when we look at the genetic information of living things, we see three branches that separated long, long ago in evolutionary time. And uh, archaea look at first glance a lot like bacteria, but they have some differences. Their membrane structure is um, uniformly pretty different from what bacteria look like. And there are some other features about them that uh, are consistent in that lineage of the tree of life that are distinct from other organisms. But for the most part, they're microscopic. They don't have an, uh, a membrane around their genetic material. So in a lot of ways, they look like bacteria. And they've been getting much more attention over the last couple decades um, as people learned where they tend to live. So a lot of archaea, but not all, tend to be in more of the unusual environments. And that seems to be associated with the way that they are structured, the types of metabolisms that they can do. And so you find them in different places potentially than bacteria, but for our macroscopic perspective on things, um, they're pretty similar to bacteria. Okay, got it, got it. Another topic of CRISPR, um, how far away do you think you are from using CRISPR to like create designer babies? Is that it? Well, that has already begun in some places to much negative reaction. Um, so the scientific community is broadly on the side of we don't know enough yet about the consequences of doing this gene editing in humans. So even if we think we've been successful, we could have some off-target effects, things we didn't intend to make changes to that get changed during that process. And so scientists as a whole are very reluctant to go down that path. That said, um, in late 2018, I believe, um, there was a report that a Chinese scientist had engineered embryos um, to be resistant to HIV infection. So we know some information about how HIV works, genetic determinants of whether you're going to be susceptible or not, many, many different things. Um, and that information was used to basically correct, well, correct is too strong a word, to change the genetic information of embryos belonging to people who have HIV and therefore had the concern that HIV would be passed down to their child. Um, and so that that was edited using CRISPR. And everyone denounced that as being really inappropriate to do um, at this point in our knowledge and given that we have other treatments for HIV. So 
fast forward however many numbers of years or decades from now, we might feel more confident in our knowledge of the technology to where treatment of certain diseases could be seen as acceptable. But I think we're still not there. The broader scientific community is definitely not there. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Just on the topic that we talked about right before the podcast on on it being very, very hard to simulate and this kind of like what, what would happen if you engage with CRISPR in, in this kind of things, for instance, um, just out of curiosity, what, what, what makes it hard to simulate um, a bio, bio, biological system? Is, is it that oh. it's too many variables? Yeah, so we just, we know so much about how the human body works and how our genetics work, but we also don't know so much about how all those things work and how things that seem unrelated might actually be related in a way that has consequences if we make changes to one thing. Um, it can have ramifications that we never anticipated. And so that's always something we need to be cautious about. And that's why when there's a new um, pharmaceutical treatment that's presented as a possible way to cure a disease or, or treat it, um, it goes through many rounds of trials to figure out safety, to figure out efficacy. And it just takes, because there's lots of differences from one human to the next, because we are all these very complex systems, um, you can have a variety of outcomes for the same treatment. And so we always, we have learned to be cautious about new treatments and making sure we've really checked all the different ways that things can go right, things can go wrong, um, and decide whether those risks are appropriate for people to take or not. And so when it comes to gene editing um, and editing genomes, we might think that we've correctly fixed something that we aimed to change. Um, and so let's say we we observed a gene that is associated with some type of disease in a particular person and we've identified a way to change that, we might successfully change the thing we hope to change. We might also have had some sort of unintended consequence either because of that successful change or off to the side of it. So we have so many genes and so much genetic material, there's a chance that you also mistakenly um, are doing gene editing on a portion of the genome that was meant to be left alone. So until we are very confident in all the ways that things can go wrong and we know how to guard against those, it's premature to go full steam ahead with any given treatment because we've seen time and again that there are um, there are issues that come up. And we've had gene editing experiments before um, because CRISPR isn't the only way you can edit genomes. It's just the easiest um, and it makes it much more approachable in a wider variety of things. But we've had gene editing um, experiences in medical history that have led to things like cancer um, because mm. changes were made that weren't anticipated and it led to uncontrolled cell growth. So all sorts of possibilities are out there and we don't know which ones are likely to be the important problems that we need to guard against until we see lots of examples um, or we know more about the underlying biology. But there's just so much to know. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. Um, just moving on a little bit, going back a little bit to um, um, to your PhD uh, thesis. I was just curious, how was the process of? So you 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 motivated to to research more about bacterial metabolism and 
phenocytes and, and the bacteria. How do you go from there to like, what is the process like? So then it's time to pick a research question. Um, and I joined a group that was studying this kind of unusual looking metabolism. And the research question that I ended up focusing on was, can these phenazines, these diffusible electron carrying molecules, can they um, provide a survival advantage in the absence of oxygen? And so to test that, you need a pretty um, special setup. So this is the sort of thing that I am definitely not able to do uh, you know, in my kitchen or something like that. So we needed to have an environment that was free of oxygen because we were trying to test whether these things provided an advantage when there's no oxygen. Um, we needed electrodes in order to measure whether electrons were moving in the way that we thought they were. And then we needed various conditions to test, um, do we have electron movement with the phenazines? At what level, like what concentration of phenazines make this possible? How many cells can survive? Um, and so there was, you've maybe seen these things in uh, interviews or other things before, glove boxes, so perfectly sealed plastic or metal and glass containers and some gloves that you would use in order to manipulate things that are inside this sealed area. And so in that sealed volume, we had just nitrogen and nitrogen is an inert gas. So it wasn't going to interfere with our research setup. Um, and then we had to get the bacterial cells into that space. Um, we had to get the phenazines in that. We needed the electrodes. So it was a very fancy looking setup. Um, and then we needed to monitor, well, on a daily basis, are they surviving? Are they growing? Are we seeing the population decline? What's happening in each of those different conditions? And so that meant um, every day taking samples of this liquid with or without phenazines, with or without an electrode, and seeing how many cells could grow from each of those conditions. And that would tell us how many viable cells are still present. Um, so it's a very elaborate setup in order to study a very straightforward looking question. And I think that's really fun in bacterial metabolism or bacterial physiology. You think of what's your research question, you think of all the different variables that are involved, and then you control them in different ways. So either by removing them, so we removed oxygen entirely, or by testing one variable against another and seeing if everything adds up to what you are expecting. And so uh, that was that was really fun to think about. It was a little bit less fun to do because of all of the ergonomic constraints of the setup that I was just describing. But it was really fun always to see the results coming out and trying to make sense of them. That's so cool. That is really, really cool. What is, um, yeah, just on the results, what, what kind of results did you guys get? Was it anything that surprised you or what was the, yeah, what was the results? Yeah, so the result is if you have everything set up properly, which is to say you have bacterial cells, you have the presence of phenazines, you have an electrode that is at a uh, a potential energy that would accept electrons. If you have all of those things, then these cells that normally cannot survive in conditions without oxygen can live for about a week. Um, they might lose about 10% 
of their uh, numbers over that time, but they by and large are surviving in that condition. Whereas if you remove any one of those things, if you don't give them phenazines, but you give them that electrode, that's not enough to keep them alive. Um, if you give them the opposite condition, they still won't survive. So you really need all of these things present. And the interpretation there is if there is something that allows phenazines to drop off their electrons, then phenazines can assist with the longer term survival of an organism that was previously characterized as basically aerobic, meaning it basically needs um, oxygen in order to live and grow and divide. But as we mentioned before, there's a difference between growing and dividing and surviving. Because if there's a cell hanging around and conditions suddenly improve, it can grow and divide because it's still alive. So you've got dying or dead, surviving, and potentially waiting for conditions to improve. And then you've got growing and dividing. And you can imagine, based on exponential growth, things cannot be in the growing and dividing stage all the time. It would not take so many generations of even E. coli doubling um, to completely cover the earth. And we know they don't do that. So it's up to a carrying capacity. And then they're in a survival state until conditions improve again. Right, okay. That is cool. So um, what kind of implications does that does that have, that research have in general? Sure, so because this organism is an opportunistic pathogen, it can sometimes cause really hard to treat infections in burn wounds, in lung infections. Um, knowing anything more about how this organism might survive in those locations is really helpful. And you might think at first, well, wait, lungs? How can lungs be devoid of oxygen? How would this possibly matter? Because I breathe in air, air has oxygen. Um, these shouldn't need a specialized metabolism like this. But we see that phenazines are produced in lung mucus to some extent. Um, and there have also been studies that show when you look at what's the amount of oxygen at different layers within lung mucus that would be in the lungs of someone who's gotten infection, that oxygen level can approach zero because of all the metabolism that these cells and other cells are doing. In, so basically, they're harvesting energy by using oxygen as that electron acceptor. But at some point, you run out of oxygen. It's not um, replenishing as quickly as, as it's getting used. And so there is potentially um, a role for these phenazines to assist in the longer term survival, potentially the um, resistance to antibiotics that might be uh, given as a treatment. And so if this is important in that way, it gives us one more avenue to try to disable or um, stall out the, the bacteria that are causing problems. So it's one of these things where the more we know about the underlying biology, the more clever and strategic we can be with a treatment or harnessing the use of that biology. Mm. Wow. Okay, now your thesis paper makes a lot more sense to me. Cool. Thank you so much for explaining it to me. I am. I was curious. Um, this is a final question. What what kind of things in in this field or in biology in general kind of excites you these days, or what are you curious about um, these days? Oh, um, I remain really fascinated by diverse metabolisms. 
And so I will continue to be keeping up with what we learn about that. I think bacterial or microbial fuel cells are particularly interesting to me. That's the example where we talked about these um, these diffusible electron shuttles, the phenazines, can bring electrons to an electrode um, from a food source that might not otherwise be very useful to us. Um, this idea of microbial fuel cells is pretty cool and I think holds promise for low energy usage scenarios. So light bulbs, uh, powering a wastewater treatment plant. So things like that still interest me a lot as well as the metabolism for making biofuels. So when we look around us and we say, oh gosh, there's so much energy trapped in stuff that we see as waste if there's ways for the microbes to help us convert something from unusable waste to usable waste, I think that's really exciting. And then, yeah, just understanding more about how bacteria do what they do beyond the scope of metabolism as well. So how are they setting up infections or how are they keeping an ecosystem healthy? How are they keeping a human healthy? Um, because it's easy for us to focus a lot on things that cause infections or cause disease, but there's way more things that are part of a normal, healthy ecosystem and how every, how those different populations keep each other in check. is, I think really interesting as well. Mm, that does sound very interesting for sure. Thank you so much for, um, for explaining this all to me. I, I, I wasn't too curious about this before, but now I have like tons of questions and it really sparked my curiosity. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you too. <laughs> um,